I want to begin uh, a series entitled Difficult Questions from the Scriptures. And the first in this series is a topic that is often just swept under the carpet, yet it is perhaps one of the most widespread um, matters or issues needing to be addressed in the church. There is often no clear or definitive uh, understanding of this within the doctrines and practices of most church denominations. It's the difficult subject of marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Now, even as I say it, you very well understand that this, uh, this is, there, there's, a, there's almost no clear um, policy articulated by most churches uh, on, this, on this issue. And when there is some policy, it is grotesquely incomplete and leaves all manner of things unaccounted for. And that's because, by and large, the doctrine in this area has simply been undeveloped. Um, and what policy there is suffers greatly from such influences as the relationship between the church and the state and uh, the whole matter of the state church, where there is a presumption that the policies of the church apply equally to citizens of a state. So what I want to do at the outset of this is to frame the issue in Scripture, and we will leave no unattended portion of this. When I'm done, I hope that this mysterious subject will be brought fully into the light, that persons who have been affected by it will have great clarity. Some may need to repent, others may understand that uh, they were never bound up in the fashion in which the church uh, would have had them bound up. So, I would like to begin with the reference that focuses this uh, intensely in the scriptures when Jesus was asked a question by certain ones who wished to test him. From the book of Matthew, the 19th chapter, beginning at verse 1. Uh, now it came to pass when Jesus had finished these sayings that he departed from Galilee and came to the region of Judea beyond Jordan. And great multitudes followed him and he healed them. The Pharisees came to him to test him, and they said to him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife 
for any reason, for any cause. And he answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together, let no man separate. Then he said, they said to him, Why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? He said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. His disciples said to him, If such is the case of the man and his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, All cannot accept this saying, but only those to whom it is given. I want to carefully deconstruct this passage as a foundation for getting into the greater picture uh, that largely has been neglected or has been covered over and is opaque. You'll notice contextually, verse 3, that the Pharisees asked him a question designed to test him or to trap him. So he understands their mindsets and is not falling for the trap. Their intent in the matter is disingenuous. They don't really want to know the truth. But in the process, Jesus takes them beyond the entrapment and starts there by saying, In the beginning it was not so, knowing that they were going to try to put him against Moses, who did permit a writing of divorce in the event that a man was to put away his wife. And he reiterated the original perspective and caught them in their own trap. And they said, well, nobody could do what you are saying. And Jesus said, not everyone can accept what I'm saying, which is to set them, the questioners, outside of the purview of original intent and to disclose that they neither knew the ways of God from the beginning, nor intended to follow it even if they knew it. So, here we go. 
posed the question, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any, for, for any reason considering the fact that Moses granted the, the permission of a writing of divorce? What do you say? Moses says there is the permission of divorce through a writing. What do you say? And again the trap is, who are you as compared to Moses? So Jesus clothes himself with the authority of God by referencing the original intent. There he says, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now, clearly, Jesus is referencing the story of creation, Genesis chapter 2, and he's quoting it verbatim where God said, and the two shall become one flesh. He made them male and female and delineated the fashion in which He made them. The woman was taken out of the man. The man himself acknowledged, Adam acknowledged, this is flesh of my flesh, bone of my bones. She shall be called woman because she's taken out of the man. And then Genesis 2 says, concludes, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This was said at a time when there was only Adam and Eve. There was no mother and father. Adam was the original man, Eve the original woman, and neither one in a natural sense or in a fleshly sense, neither one had a mother or a father. So he's looking to the future. He's setting up a principle for the future. This implicitly makes obvious that this whole narrative, the form of the creation of woman, the nature of the two being one flesh, is meant to be representational at the center of of a thing God wishes to communicate. Now, where it comes to creation and to God, the invisible God can only be seen in creation through representations. The Son, Hebrews tells us, chapter 1 verse 2, is the radiance of His Father's glory and the exact representation of His Father's being. So although things may be said in set pieces, such as the creation of man, uh, creation of woman out of the man, 
and that, that piece is relevant in and of itself, it pours over into a larger picture of representation. And taken just by itself, it is an incomplete picture at best. Now, it is critically important that we understand what was in the mind of God in the beginning, because this is what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, in the beginning it was not the way Moses ultimately uh, ordered. There was, an, there was an order prior to the granting of the writing of divorce, and that order is still to be preserved even in the face of Moses granting the right of divorce. So Jesus goes back to and speaks from the position of the original intent of God. What was God doing when He took the woman out of the man? What was God ordaining when He said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? What is that leading to? Is that an end within itself or is this representational? Is he setting up the representation for something yet to be disclosed? Anyone with even a passing knowledge of the New Testament will know that the Apostle Paul in the fifth chapter of the book of Ephesians, writing on the subject of the marriage between a man and a woman, uses the set piece of marriage to analogize to Christ and the church. And he quotes this same passage from Genesis 2.21. For this reason a man will leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then he adds this. This is a profound mystery, but I am speaking about Christ and the church, this representational model. Now, what is to be represented here? Well, let's go back to in the beginning when the two were made, when the two became one flesh. How did that happen? Well, Adam, for Adam, there was no suitable helper found in all that had been created. And so God caused Adam to fall into a deep sleep. And as he slept, God removed a rib from his side, out of which then God made woman, brought her to the man. And the man said, This is flesh of my flesh, bone of my bones. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of the man. And then the quote from Uh, that Paul refers to 
in Ephesians, the fifth chapter, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And adds, this is a profound mystery, but I am speaking about Christ and the church. Now what precisely connects this mystery or connects the event of Eve being formed out of the rib taken out of Adam to Christ and the church? Well, in the case of Adam, his side was wounded and from the wound God retrieved the rib from which He made the woman. Now God could have made the woman in exactly the same way He made everything else in creation. He could have formed the woman independently of the man, but that was not the intent. This was representational. So He found so he, he, he withdrew this portion of the man from which He made the woman to demonstrate that the two were indeed of the same material, that one came out of the other, that the woman came out of the man. Needless to say, this is the pattern that is repeated at the cross, where Jesus' side is wounded by a Roman spear about the size of a man's hand, the head of it. The Latin term was lunke and uh, it was, a, it was a, a stabbing instrument to rent a hole in the side or anywhere on the person uh, who was the victim of the stab. But the scriptures are specific. They say that when the Roman soldier came by, uh, to break his legs while Jesus was on the cross, to induce pressure on his lungs to cause him to die quicker, to suffocate, found that he was already dead. And to test whether or not he was dead, he rented his side with this lance and they poured out of his side the separated blood and water the definitive sign that he had already died. It would be a passing reference but for the fact that we are specifically told in the book of Hebrews that speaks to the Hebrews, that speaks of the sacrifice of Jesus, that, quote, a new and living way had been opened through the veil, that is to say, His flesh, and analogizes the renting of the veil in the temple which signified the separation between the eternal and the natural, between the holy and the, the physical. That veil had remained intact and man could not penetrate the veil everything was a type and shadow and could not and the mysteries could not be understood until Christ came who is the torn veil i am the way he said i am the truth i am the life no man comes to the father but by me if you've seen me 
you've seen my Father. For the Father and I are one, because I only do what I see my Father doing. Indeed, the Father loves the Son and shows him what he's doing. He is the veil. When the veil was torn, the day Jesus died, and I'm convinced that the moment the sword was thrust in, or the spear was thrust into his side, pronouncing him certifiably dead, in that instant, the veil of the temple was rent in two from top to bottom, which means access into the presence of God had now been made fully available to man. So the wound in his side is the entry point or the symbolic point of entry to those who may be assembled into the person of Christ and be made one with him again as Eve was with Adam before that portion of Adam was extracted from which Eve was created. This is the mystery. We are reconciled to God in Christ through this new and living way. And when Paul speaks of it in Ephesians 5, he's now talking about the fact that this is a fait accompli. It is a thing that is finished and now available to the body of Christ, available to men and women who are married to understand the union between Christ and the church. So in that capacity, he says, husbands, this is Ephesians 5.22, husbands, love your wives as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, making her holy by washing through the water of the word that he might present her to himself without spot, wrinkle, or blemish. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. For no man yet has ever hated his own flesh, but loves it and cares for it just as Christ does the church. Then he goes on to say, wives, submit to your own husbands as unto the Lord. There again, the mystery, the representational peace, the peace that is shrouded in the undisclosed in Genesis 2 is now fully disclosed in uh, Ephesians 5. In between, Jesus is saying to the Pharisees who only saw divorce as a social permission but were oblivious to the reference of Scripture to this representational peace, their, their minds were darkened and in fact they were the evidence as to why Moses needed to give a writing of divorce. They had long forgotten if they ever knew what God intended in His original creation of man and woman in the manner in which He created the woman by taking her out of the man. So Jesus takes them back into that analogy 
and says, what you have from Moses was necessary because of you. Your hardness of heart. Hardness of heart is described in Scripture as, quote, turning away from the living God. Anytime anyone turns away from the living God, that condition is described as having hardness of heart. It's also described as their foolish hearts were darkened. Why? Because they're returning again to the lack of enlightenment that comes from walking in Christ. If you walk in the light as He is in the light, you have fellowship one with another and the blood of Jesus Christ continuously cleanses us from all sin. If we, if we say we walk in, in, uh, in the truth but love the fruitless works of darkness, we lie. We're deceiving ourselves. Whoever is of the light walks in the light, comes to Christ. So God will deal with a person where the person is and there are distinctly different positionings as they relate to God. If if your heart pursues righteousness, then it will be tender toward the Lord and He'll teach you all manner of things. If you prefer darkness rather than light because your deeds are evil, then God will give you over to the darkness and you'll stumble in the darkness because you choose not the glory of the light of God. This was their condition. They had long preferred the rebelliousness of their forefathers and it had become a culture so that the remnant of the understanding of the things of God in terms of the original intent no longer affected their thinking, they were unimpressed by the original intent. So they were made again to understand what the original intent was. And even then, Jesus did not fully disclose the original intent because it would it would only be disclosed subsequently when He became the new and living way sometime from this moment in Matthew 19 when He says to them, in the beginning it was not so. After He died, after His side was rented, like the veil in the temple and the way now was opened again, not just into the type and shadow of the holy place, but actually again into the presence of God. Man would be, as 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says, God would now be in Christ, in the Corpus Christi, God would be reconciling the world to Himself in Christ. This is the first piece. It is to talk about the original intent. As I come back, I want to talk to you then about natural law. Natural law versus the original intent. Most 
Bible, uh, most church doctrines on the subject of divorce and remarriage rely upon natural law, not an understanding of the representational model of divinely inspired original intent. I'm Sam Solon. Continue to study the subject out with me. I'll see you then. Bye-bye.